Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Out of the Gray. Before we get started today, a quick note. After we recorded this podcast, something surprising happened. Landauer sold the commissioning business to Matt, Robert, and Rob. Landauer Commissioning is now known as True North Medical Physics. The name has changed, but the people and the service are the same. Without any further delay, let's jump into this latest conversation. And welcome back to another episode of Out of the Gray, the podcast where we discuss all things radiation oncology and medical physics. Today, I'm incredibly excited. We have with us a group of physicists from Landauer on the commissioning team. Tim, we'll start with you. I'll just start at the top of my screen and go down. If you'd like to introduce yourself, please. I am Tim Durant, the sole engineer on our Landauer commissioning team. I'm actually in my fifth career, radiation oncology, linear accelerator commissioning. But I began as a electronics technician reactor operator on a U.S. nuclear fleet ballistic missile submarine. After honorable discharge, left the Navy, worked in commercial nuclear power for another eight and a half years. That was shut down, changed over to my college, which came in the middle of my life, graduated with a bachelor's in science and electrical engineering from the University of California, Berkeley. Went on to do uh, aerospace and defense electronic design. And then after that, transitioned into linear accelerator commissioning at the Siemens in factory commissioning, known as Velocity at that time. Left that after that factory moved to Germany, uh, then did more electronic design and medical devices, a radiofrequency ablation device uh, for treating tumors in vivo. And then for the last six years since 2015, I've been with Landauer Medical Physics doing linear accelerator uh, commissioning. Wow. Thank you so much for the introduction and welcome to the group here. We'll move down now to Robert Staten. Hey, Tracy. This is Robert Staten. Yeah, I'm a medical physicist on the Landauer commissioning team. I have about 13 years of clinical experience before I joined the Landauer team just as a clinical medical physicist doing a variety of clinical activities, you know, stereotactic radiosurgery, normal QA and beta testing and things like that for new products, brachytherapy, and I was involved in residency training as well. I joined Landauer about two and a half years ago to join the, the commissioning team here and I'm glad to be a part of it. Thank you so much for taking time to join us today. Next, I'll introduce Rob Hayward. Hi, Tracy. Yeah, I'm Rob Hayward, a computational physicist the commissioning group. So uh, I guess I'll just talk about how I got into medical physics. I'd never even heard of it until the end of my undergraduate career at Tulane. I was finishing degrees in math and cell molecular biology. And I thought I was going to go on to med school. But as I started interviewing in med school, I realized uh, I didn't want to be a physician and give up that kind of math programming side of myself. My girlfriend, who's now my wife, was applying to the Georgia Tech Nuclear Engineering graduate program. And she told me about this thing called medical physics, and it sounded like right up my alley. So I applied and you know, eventually went on to get my master's degree in medical physics and my PhD in nuclear engineering, specializing in Boltzmann transport theory. And then after a postdoc in France, I spent seven years at Sun Nuclear Corporation, where I was primarily responsible for the dose calculation engine and beam modeling. And that's where I realized the importance of uh, good beam data that the uh, commissioning team's printing. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so that's how I, I ended up transitioning to commissioning. For fun, uh, I explore caves and do, uh, I'm also uh, on the cave rescue team. Oh, some spelunking going on there. 
<laughs> I love it. Thank you so much for taking time to join us today. I look forward to hearing more. And I'll introduce Matt uh, there at the bottom. How are you today, Matt? Good, good. Thanks, Tracy. Yeah, so my name is Matt Daniels. Uh, I'm a board-certified medical physicist as well. And I'm the director of the commissioning team. So I kind of help these guys, you know, uh, in terms of marketing and do a bunch of other stuff like that to help lead the team and uh, get us some more and more projects. I was clinical for about five years with Landauer. It's kind of my second tour, so to speak, with Landauer. I was with them for about five years uh, back before when they were a company called CPSI. And then I joined Sun Nuclear. Uh, so I joined the industry kind of... Actually, that's where I met Rob. I kind of recruited him from there. So sorry for anybody from Sun watching this. Uh, <laughs> he's working with us now and uh, we're really glad he's here. So after working with, at Sun for about seven years, then uh, Landauer gave me a call and said they had a need uh, for someone on the commissioning team. And so I rejoined them and I've been working with them for about three years. And I also recruited uh, Robert to come join us at that time. So, and he stuck around. So I must have uh, done something right. So that's good. <laughs> in terms of, uh, I also recently moved to Washington. So I now I'm on a kind of a, a mountaintop farm, which is a little bit fun. So now my kids are having a great time running around with uh, chickens and cats and dogs and hamsters and all kinds of animals. So, a little bit different than when we were living in suburban Florida. So it's uh, been an adjustment, but it's been a fun one. So I love it. I too live on the mountaintop in the middle of farms oh. and it's a glorious lifestyle. It is. <laughs> the view is amazing. So you can't beat it. It's wonderful. Last but definitely not least, we have with us Naomi from the Landauer Commissioning Team. Naomi, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Naomi Morales and uh, I recently joined the commissioning team. I graduated from residency a couple of months ago, and I just started this new position. It has been a great opportunity to be part of this awesome team, and yeah, very happy to be part of them. I am curious about being a commissioning team. I'll step off script for just a bit here. What is it like having to, I guess, not have a home base? Is there is there equipment that, that is chosen simply based on its mobility? Is obviously very important. Yeah, so we have, I mean, our all of our equipment is stored in um, Dayton, Ohio, because one of our coworkers, Amber, who's our operations manager, she's based there, actually. So she handles all the managing of the equipment um, and shipping it out for us. So we have multiple sets of equipment. So even if we're on you know, one job and we're going, say, directly to another one, then we've got another set of equipment that we can send out. So we have kits of equipment that contain basically, you know, one or two of everything that we'll need uh, as far as, I mean, there's only one water scanning tank, <laughs> but uh, as far as other detectors and having backups and things like that as well. So, uh, I mean, it's, I mean, it's nice that we can all be a part of the team and not have to live in the same location. So, and it's advantageous whenever, you know, we're doing, um, because we do two jobs all over the country. So, you know, I'm on the East coast and Matt and Tim are over on the West coast and Rob's on the East coast or kind of, I guess, central slash east, southeast. And so, you know, if we do a job on the East Coast and, you know, we can uh, get there, you know, earlier because it's easier for us to get there. And one of the guys from the West Coast can join later or do the late shift or, you know, vice versa when we're doing a job on the other side of the country. So I think each of the the four of us is in a different time zone, in fact. Yeah, that's true. true. Yeah. (laughs) You see someone to move to Hawaii and uh, we'll have everything covered. So, yeah. Right. I will join the team and make the sacrifice <laughs> of moving to Hawaii. I'll need some education though. <laughs> cool. On the job train. Yeah. Yeah. That has to be probably one of, one of the most fun parts, right? You've got a base there where all of your equipment is shipped out of, but then you can work and live from anywhere. So I guess 
one follow-up question to to the shipping of of things. Do you ship your 3D tanks around or do the places you go to commission you do you ship your tanks? Yeah, I mean, Rob, do you mind? Rob, Rob, do you mind? Go for it. Sure. Yeah. yeah, so what we found is before I joined, they sort of preferred using their own tanks and occasionally they'd use customer tanks. And we kind of started out that way. What we found, though, is a lot of times customer tanks may not have been maintained as well as they should have, or there's some other issues. Maybe they've been, you know, they're, they're kind of dusting them off for the first time in five years for this commissioning. And I think it works, but we'll just kind of boot it up and kind of see what happens sort of thing. And so we've had multiple instances where that's caused delays in commissioning or, you know, we just couldn't get the quality of data that we wanted. And so we've kind of taken a different approach where we have a very specialized reinforced, basically like a, a you know, steel cage sort of thing for our water tanks to protect them as much as possible. And the reason we do that is, again, because we can kind of guarantee that the data we produce is high quality and that we can get the job done very, very quickly. So, and, we, and sort of the other approaches we know that customers do have, you know, different water tanks and might need their data in different formats. And that's one of the reasons we brought Rob on board is because now we can kind of do those comparisons or do translation from the format we take the data into whatever format they want, right? So we always give the customer the data in the format they want, even if we collect it with our, our tank. And so far, when we've talked to customers, they're fine with that, right? As long as they get the data in the format they can use, then they're happy. I don't know, Tim, Rob, do you guys have anything else to add? No, only that we've made a supreme effort to perfect our shipping. Literally even went out to visit shipping suppliers. People actually did shipping the crate. We even crawl inside the crate when it arrives and find if there's any small pieces that fell off. And the other thing about having the home base is our home base ensures that every piece that needs calibration or maintenance gets it in the prescribed time. And that would be hard to do if this were just sitting all over the country or in our garages or something. Matt made a very good point that we do provide the data. We've researched it. The customer had a standard imaging dose view scanning system. That system will import the data in the PGW format. If they had an IBA system, we would convert the data to IBA and give it to them in that format. If they had Sun, we would group the data accordingly and give it to them uh, so they can import it into the Sun format. So we, I think we've gone over everything. But we like using our own equipment now. We did formerly use the site equipment. But again, we found it was either broken, not maintained. They didn't have up-to-date software on their laptop. So it caused delays or inefficiencies. So now it's actually better for both parties, for us and for the customer, if the people are arriving are well in tune with the scanning system and detectors or they're going to be using. Yeah, seems like a well-tried plan. When you go on site to a commissioning task, do you travel in groups or is it, do you just, is it the regional person goes and completes the commissioning solo? Yeah, so that's a good question. I guess I'll jump in on this one. Yeah. So we usually do do in groups. So we usually have, we're part of Landauer and Landauer has a residency program. So a lot of time, one of the uh, benefits of that program is that the residents actually get to go on commissioning with us. So for us, it's great, right? Because we get uh, a little bit of free labor. And for them, they also get the experience of doing commissioning, which a lot of residency programs uh, don't offer, right? If they don't have any Lenite going in, then that resident won't get a commission, won't be able to do a commission. And so it's kind of a, a benefit for both parties. So we usually bring a resident if we can. And usually there's uh, Robert and I, so there's usually two board certified physicists. And then usually either Tim or Rob will join as well. So one part of it kind of depends on the scope of the project, right? The more, the bigger the project is, then the more people we need to bring. But we found it to be more efficient to have sort of one board certified physicist doing all the beam modeling and then another board certified physicist kind of 
handling the data collection and checking the accuracy and that sort of thing. Robert, do you, do you have anything to add to that? Or? No, I just say, uh, you know, on occasion, you could also have somebody doing, you know, if we have access, we can do remote modeling as well. So somebody can be working on that. Since the majority of centers are choosing to use, you know, representative data or, you know, something pre, I guess you would maybe call it pre-configured uh, models. So basically that work can be done at the same time. Like Matt mentioned, as you're acquiring the other data and doing the comparisons, um, so somebody could be doing that remotely, and we've we've done that, you know, occasionally, but not often. And part of the other reason is it really allows us to be very, uh, you know, a lot of these customers are pretty time sensitive, right? I mean, every day that that machine isn't commissioned is another day they can't treat cancer patients, right? So um, we're able to usually get, you know, for these pre-configured jobs, get them done in like you know two to three days. And obviously, if you have uh, just in one person then that kind of timeline gets extended. And so we're trying to get things done as, as quickly as possible for the customer as well. Then get up and treating patients. I'll say it's, as someone who joined the team recently, it's, it's really impressive to see everyone kind of arrive on site and start setting everything up. It's a well-oiled machine. Yeah. <laughs> Even though we are well-oiled in the group aspect, there's also the quality control aspect. So there are times we could just send in one person at a time but it only takes a small error or misjudgment or just not seeing something clearly when you're setting the effective measurement point of the detector or the SSD on the surface of the tank or just the inclination or the settings in the software when you're scanning the speed, the dwell time. So it's really good to have a second person there to make sure the setup is exact as we need from the first measurement on. Yeah. So usually at least two people at a time is good. and. Uh, it's worked out well that way. That seems like a very well thought out, very efficient way to do things. And you mentioned you have a residency plan uh, program, and I, I know I'm stepping again away from the original script, but it's an interesting topic for me. How does one, <clears throat> pardon me, how does one become involved with the residency program? Is there an application process or what stage in one's physics career do you apply for a residency like this? So whenever you finish graduate school, they then apply to residency because basically in order to become board certified, now you have to complete a residency program. And so um, most people, and that could be either, you know, master's or PhD when they're finishing, you know, usually uh, the, the start of the program is for most programs is around July. So a lot of uh, people um, are applying uh, now. So no, you know, late end of the year, beginning of the year, and they're going through interviews and things like that. And then CampEp is using a match system now. Um, all, all residencies aren't necessarily don't have to choose to be in the match, but most do. Um, so there's a, kind of a system to that that's very similar to how physicians uh, get matched uh, in residencies as well. Interesting. So. Could one apply directly to Lando or does it, does it all go through the match program? You do have to pick which programs you want to apply to within the match. And so you could only apply to one. And in the match system, the preference does favor the applicant uh, as far as their preference. Um, but basically, it's, it's a ranking. And so they would you know, rank all of the programs in the match that they want you know, based on the priority and the one that they want to get matched with, and then the residencies do the same thing. And then they, there's an algorithm that's <laughs> developed basically to maximize the number of matches um, is essentially how it works. How um, many residents does Landauer currently have on board? They take between five to six per year, roughly, depending on the year 
and how many they can take. Um, they are spread out over multiple different locations. Uh, so there's, uh, there's multiple site training sites, essentially. So there's larger ones are in, in Atlanta uh, and Charlotte, where they take two residents a year at those sites. Uh, there's one in uh, just outside of Chicago. And then there is, they're going to add Missouri Baptist and then hopefully one at uh, CTCA in Phoenix as well. They're looking to add a slot there as well. So growing all the time. And they, yeah. the residents stay for two or three years? Yeah, it's a two-year program. Yep. Very cool. Yeah, and one other um, interesting thing about Landauer is so most residency programs are through you know, academic institutions like Duke or University of Wisconsin, right, Stanford, that sort of thing. And so they have a high preference for PhDs. Landauer kind of turned that on their head where they have a high preference for master's. And so, which is good because a lot of the master's students can't or it's, it's harder for them to get residencies at some of the other academic institutions. And so Landauer has a, a tendency just like with, with Naomi to get really, really high quality uh, residents. So they've done a, a kind of a great job and kind of broadening the, uh, the residency program to actually accept more master's students and PhDs. If I just add at the finish of the residency, Landauer has done a good job and the residents as well, that they felt good about the match, that the majority of residents actually remain on with Landauer and move on to some therapy position, or in Naomi's case, a commissioning position. So we still have quite a few residents that went through the two-year program and are still with the company now. That speaks very highly for not only the program, but the organization as a whole as well. And Naomi, I know you're uh, listening in via phone. Did you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I agree with everything that has been mentioned by Tim, Mavin, and Robert. In my case, for example, I graduated from Duke. I did two years of my master's program there. And after that, I did I work at CTCA Atlanta. I matched there for two years. The experience that I had with Landau was actually pretty good. I have to say that even, you know, it was hard, of, of course. But as everything, I think all that clinical experience has helped me so much because I was actually treated as a, not as a student, but actually as a physicist. And I think it was one of the best things that I actually got from the residency. And the other great thing is that they do have great people that they care about about you as a person. For example, our vice president for Landauer, he's awesome. He's great. He advocates for everyone, especially the residents. And I thought that was a great thing to have as part of in, you know, in our leadership within the company. And he basically, I spoke with him. I told him, this is what I'm looking for in the company. I want to achieve this. Can you help me? And he said, yes. So he has been super supportive, and that's the reason why I decided to stay with Landauer because the people were actually great. And after two years, I feel that I have, I have made friends, I have family, and it has been pretty good overall. That's the reason why I decided to stay. I think there's a lot of future for all the residents. The vast majority of the people have stayed here. Last year, was five residents out of six stay with Landauer. So I think that's a really good uh, statistic that indicates how the quality of the program is. Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. Thank you so much for adding that in there. One more feature. You'll recognize Naomi has a slightly different accent than the rest of us. So we have, we have actually, um, um, no, we have a multinational team. We have had residents from Cameroon, Africa, French speaking. We have Mandarin speaking uh, from China. Naomi's originally uh, from Puerto Rico. And we also have a resident who's now in therapy from Cozumel, Mexico. So we have a bilingual power on the team, as well as our experience and all the everything else you've heard. And I think it's a very cool aspect of the Landauer program that it doesn't just 
stay within the 48 contiguous states. That's amazing. I, I've recently had a lot of conversations with some uh, folks from Africa and, and Europe, Asia, things, physicists from around the globe as part of this project. And they often ask, how would one come in and learn in the U.S. or, or move, uh, move to the U.S. from one of these countries? Would there be an opportunity with Landauer for folks looking to come to the U.S. from somewhere outside of the country? Yeah, so we actually have a resident right now. from New, he's, he's from New Zealand, so he actually was a medical physicist in New Zealand for several years. Um, but he's actually originally from Africa. And so he sort of started his career in New Zealand. We actually did a commissioning for him a few years ago. That's how he became acquainted with, with Landauer. And then his family decided they wanted to move to the U.S. And so he kind of investigated how to become a medical physicist in the U.S. and kind of settled on doing a residency through Landauer and then being able to get board certified and then um, you know, work in the field in a, probably next year. So yeah, there's certainly a pathway with Landauer. Unfortunately, in the U.S., though, the, you know, the ABR doesn't recognize you know, you know, certifications from other countries. You know, so even though um, you know, like this resident, if he was certified and working uh, you know, in another country, that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, he can just come and work here as a certified you know, physicist. So unfortunately, there is a pathway, but there is, you know, it takes a couple of years to get there. We will now take a quick break from our discussion to chat about our sponsor, Standard Imaging. With 31 years of dedication to good physics, we are here to help meet medical physics QA requirements accurately, safely, and efficiently. Our teams are looking forward to helping you select the best tools for the job and are only a click away at www.standardimaging.com. You'll find information about our comprehensive total QA solutions, Find access to high-quality customer care, support, and your regional account manager. We look forward to working with you in developing your program. Please feel free to reach out anytime. Now that we've kind of discussed what the the tools look like and what the program looks like and and what Landauer looks like as a whole, from the perspective of the customer, uh, to switch gears a little bit here, how does one become involved with the commissioning process once you guys are on site? What does that look like? So first, there's a, a, a quite a refined pre-commissioning process. I may go to Robert later because he normally does this among us, usually. So we will find out our business end. will There'll be some discussions, negotiations. The two parties will agree on a contract and a schedule, a rough schedule. Then it will come to us and we will send out a pre-commissioning survey. There would be probably multiple phone calls, emails, and text. But we refine the scope of the work the type of machine, the treatment planning system, uh, any special uh, QA data the customer may want, site availability, what stage of construction they're in. But at some point, a schedule will come, the manufacturer will finish, and the site will do its acceptance of the machine, and we will have a schedule to arrive on site. So when we are there, the customer, first of all, we are hired mainly because customers very often, they don't have the time, their staff is too busy to do a full commissioning. And they may not be very adept at it. You know, we do these repeatedly. We've been doing them for years. So we have the process down. Landauer invites the customer to participate in any portion of the commission that they would like to observe. And sometimes even though they're busy, there are certain evolutions we do that are rare or special. Say a small field, very often they're going to want to see the calibration for TG51. So they often join us for that. Sometimes they'll want to come, and I think maybe they're doing their own little checklist in their mind just to see how meticulous we are at our setup and the measurement, if we're paying attention. 
We're getting the EPOM right and the settings right. But actually, most of the time, we're there on our own and they will come maybe a few times a day. We'll give them a status update. But pretty much any time they walk up to the control console, we're going to stop what we're doing. If they have questions about what we're scanning, what, how the model is coming along, how the calibration is going, they will always be involved. And this is a, a, next, a later question when something goes wrong or the machine is not calibrated. But literally, we invite them to be there. The process is completely transparent so they can come and watch any part they want to. Sometimes these things go late hours. A lot of customers don't want to be there late at night or on weekends. So we always have their phone number and email to call them for anything they need to know about. And the turnover is always in person. That's part of our process. There was always an in-person turnover, usually with the entire team present. All the data is presented, any odd things, anything slightly off. But they can be involved. And sometimes they want to be involved just for their own learning. So this may be a machine of a new type, maybe be coming from, say, a Clinac to a Truebeam or, who knows, an Electa to an Edge or vice versa. They may also be going to a new version or maybe even entirely new treatment planning system. Sometimes things just get decided for them and they just have to accept it. So maybe a new treatment planning system. So they want to learn about their new machine, its capabilities, or even the operation of the Linac with the control software. Uh, some people have never seen a PTW beam scan, so they want to come in and see that set up and how it scans and the different the functionality and also the processing that we do. And I should go to maybe Robert. He might tell you a little bit about what goes on setting up the site and the uh, the pre-commissioning, the survey, the back and forth before we even arrive. We do send out a, a pre-commissioning survey uh, to the customer to try to collect all the data before we get on site of you know, the configuration of their machine, um, what type of machine it is, what type of MLC it has, what energies that we're going to be measuring, you know, the treatment planning system. If there's any specific measurements that they want taken that we don't normally take, you know, there's kind of a standard set of measurements that we do, but, you know, we're open. Uh, we, you know, ask the customer if there's particular things that they want measured as baseline, say for their annual QA and things like that. So we try to collect as much data as possible so that we can prepare everything in advance um, so that it goes uh, you know, smoothly once we get on site. Um, and also just to make sure that the expectations are clear between you know, us and the customer. Um, you know, every business is slightly different in how they do things and how they have you know, their QA program set up. Um, so we just want to make sure that, you know, that we're meeting their expectations um, with the measurements that we plan on taking. Yeah. And if I may follow up, if the customer did not have a lot of time on the first day we arrive and set up the tank, we do something I think a lot of teams do not do, and this is actually just for liability and care of the customer facility. Every night before we depart, we actually empty our beam scan tank, literally drain all the water to the reservoir, which means the following morning, the whole thing is set up again, it's leveled, it's centered, it's corrected for beam inclination. So if the customer did not see that on day one, they can see it on any subsequent day we're there. That's to make sure, first of all, we're set up exactly on each day. It forces us to check again, and it gives them a chance to see it if they want to. So we always share that with them. If they don't see it day one, come in on day number two. Yeah, I mean, to kind of summarize, um, I think the short answer is they can basically be as involved as they want, right? So mm-hmm. they want to step back, and they're you know very busy in the clinic, and that's why they hired us, right? Because a lot of times, that's what happens is they don't have enough uh, manpower or people on staff to do the commission themselves. And so that's why they bring teams like us in. Then maybe they'll be a little bit more hands-off. 
But if they really do want to be hands-on, like Tim said, maybe they haven't seen it for a while and they just want to get that experience. Um, we've also gone into situations where the physicist wasn't happy we were there, not because it was us, but because they wanted to do the commissioning themselves and the director hired a, a commissioning team behind their back, which actually worked out really well because by the end of the, the commissioning, he was really, really happy with the job we did because we worked with him and showed him everything. And he actually recommended us to some of his friends. And so, you know, we, we always try to turn, you know, whatever, whatever, <laughs> you never know what happens when you get on site. Um, certainly wasn't something we were aware of before we got there. But I always try to turn that into a positive and work with the customer and figure out what, what their needs are, right? And we kind of figure out how involved they want to be. Wow. That's a very interesting little tidbit there. I, I, I know I got, I got kind of stuck on the, on the one little piece there, right? The, why are you here? Does, does, I mean, because I know when I, I traveled uh, for about seven years, as a medical device consultant trainer. And there were definitely days where you pop up at, uh, you know, you're scheduled to be there at six o'clock in the morning and you roll in and like, no one knows why you're there, um, <laughs> which always surprised me. But that happens to you as well. Yeah, they have a little bit better warning because we have gigantic crates showing up, say two to seven days, hopefully in advance that they get there on time. That is a one of the welcome uh, warnings is those crates showing up. And um, I'll say that we actually become friends. And at one place that Robert and I went, and I'll leave the name and the place out, the psych physicist was so happy. We were actually receiving gifts. Uh, we had homemade honey from her farm when we left. But I think she was just excited because she was overwhelmed with all her responsibilities and even went out and, and got meals for us. This is during COVID. So I should point out, we talked about the group thing. One of the other group aspects is during COVID. You're not eating in a restaurant, right? All meals are takeout. You have to have cups and dishes and plates and knives and forks. You don't think about this till you don't have a kitchen to go to. Yeah. But this site was so helpful. It's one of the few sites that actually went out and actually got meals. You know, and Robert and I couldn't turn this down. I mean, we wanted to, but we it was forced on us. <laughs> you must eat. You have to eat. <laughs> Man, that's terrible. Someone coming along and just leaving <laughs> snacks. It's terrible. Uh, well, that sounds like a lovely experience to go up against one that was maybe not as nice. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that, you know, you see too is that a lot of, you know, the sites that were getting, you know, hired or contracted to do the work is probably, it may be a solo physicist. So they're really actually, you know, they're very excited to talk to other physicists because they don't have, you know, we have the advantage of being on a team of people, um, but they're often alone, you know, working out um, and they don't have somebody to double check what they're doing. Um, you know, they may not have colleagues to talk to and things like that. So a lot of times they're very excited, you know, when we get on site and like, oh, I'm just glad to talk to another physicist, you know, <laughs> in person. That's amazing too. And I've, I've seen a lot of physicists working um, over the past couple of years of my traveling, noticed that there would be more and more multi-site coverage for one individual, like a pod mm -hmm. coverage for one individual. And in those instances, if you, if you come up with something like that with a commissioning, kind of go forward business as usual and, and check in kind of like you would if they were right there in the office with you. Yeah. I mean, we try to stay in touch with them and, you know, usually we've had that, you know, too, where physicists are covering another site and this may be a new site that they're opening. And so there may not even be offices, you know, open there yet. Um, and so, yeah, they'll, they'll come in and check in with us or, you know, we'll usually we exchange cell phone numbers and text back and forth and, you know, just check in and let them know how things are going or if we have any questions or vice versa. Sense. That's that's really nice. Quality customer service there from Linda for sure. You guys are a good team, <laughs> I can tell. 
So to go back into the the more technical side of things, the next question I have is how do you validate your your data? What are your passing criteria? Yeah, so we use a couple different methods, and this is again um, one of the things we you know wanted to bring Rob on board for. So in the past, we do something called the gamma comparison. So we look at all the the scan data that we take, right? All the data from the we take from the machine with the water tank, and then compare it against known good data, whether that's uh, some historical data that we've acquired. We've done a lot of these machines or it's against sort of a reference set of data from Varian or another manufacturer. And then if there's any discrepancies, we will talk to the customer about what those are and then talk through with either if they want to have Varian come in or Electa or whoever the manufacturer is to tweak the machine to match sort of the reference data better or if they want us to you know, take the data as is and build like a custom model with it. We do that with all the scan data as well as um, all the output factors. Basically, all the data we take gets checked against something historically and then verify that it's good, especially, you know, like Tim said, sometimes we work late nights. You know, you want to make sure there's no setup errors. I mean, we're all human, right? So it's pretty, it'd be easy to make, make an error and you want to do it, catch that quickly um, versus, you know, taking four or five hours of data and then having to redo it all because, oh, I, you know, put the chamber in the wrong spot or something like that. And so that's one of the nice things we've got with Rob now. We have some new software that allows us to kind of do that on the fly. So every single scan that we acquire, we can load in the software and it'll tell us basically uh, thumbs up or thumbs down. Like, did you do a good job? Or, hey, maybe you should go check something out. Another thing we do is before we... The first set of scans we do is sort of a QA set. And so in our um, experience and our, uh, you know, as we've done more and more commissions, we found that there are certain things that on a new machine or even an existing machine tend to be the most common things that are wrong. And so we kind of have a tendency to look for those things first. And so, in fact, we actually send now all our customers a list of things to check before we get on site to kind of circumvent those problems uh, ahead of time. So that way we're not, you know, down for a day and the customer is not, you know, basically waiting another day for the commission to finish because the manufacturer uh, forgot to do something during installation. And so we kind of have a common list for them and then we have a common list for us. You know, the first set of data we tech is kind of this QA data to make sure everything looks good. And then once that's kind of uh, looked at and verified, then we'll go ahead and start acquiring the rest of the data. Um, and we also do this, the same thing with, you know, um, at the end of it, so we do this with all the scan data that we collect. And then for, you know, we a lot of people want us to do IMRT or BMAT uh, plans, right? They want us to make sure those pass, right, before we leave, that the B model looks good. And so we um, use the T- TG219 passing criteria. So it's 95% at 3% and 2 millimeters gamma criteria. But that's sort of a starting point. We usually try to do a lot better than that. Um, usually try to get like 97 or 98%. So that's sort of our baseline. And depending on what happens, you know, we might have different QA methods that we look at. And so we might have to talk to the physicist about how they watch one they want they're going to use. And so which way we should kind of skew the beam model to get the best results for the QA method they're going to use. Um, but we try to get the passing results pretty, pretty much as high as possible. I don't know, uh, Rob, Robert, do you have anything else to add to that? I guess I'll just say that part of my contribution to the team is is to avoid those uh, classes of human errors where Matt's talking about, you know, you're there <laughs> late at night, you're doing some uh, kind of manual task that you know, you've done before, but, you know, it gets tedious and boring. So so my contribution is to, is to automate some of that stuff and, and avoid those classes of errors entirely, if possible. I mean, obviously, it doesn't come for free, though. You know, there's a uh, software, you know, Creates its own its own set of things that you have to to worry about. So to that, uh, and you know, I bring also the professional software development experience, uh, version control, continuous integration testing, verification testing, 
and the rest of the team is also really awesome, especially Tim, at, uh, especially enthusiastic at, at testing new builds uh, when I released <laughs> them and comparing uh, previous scan data, in fact, and validating the software, which is really helpful. Thank you, Rob. Let me just say that it's helped us greatly also. That software has helped us identify maybe some minor errors or data translations that we did on past sites. Uh, and part of our service, by the way, is continuous improvement. So, of course, we will correct those and send a new report to those sites where this is identified. Uh, something was amiss. So it's been extremely helpful. And I might add, there are not many teams that have both a software development engineer and an, an electrical engineer. Most of these teams are going to be uh, pure medical physics. But we have a nice array of some different expertise on this team. I think jives really well. Seems like it works nicely. So we have a little bit of an idea of, of how things go, how things get started, how things are validated, how things are collected. What happens in the event, and we may have touched on it briefly, what happens in the event things don't go as planned? So there are a number of traumas we have endured and the site has endured. Many of these are beyond our control. But as we've talked about the pre-commissioning process and the survey this gets out of the way many things that may trip us up. Just identifying the scope, identifying what their facility is, what their equipment is, what the equipment we're bringing. But sometimes there are things that just happen beyond anyone's control. Okay, so I'll go through a few bullet points and then I'll go into some detail. The linear accelerator itself may fail. We have encountered a number of failed LINAC power supplies, MLC motors, circuit boards, the LINAC may be operational and seem to be functioning well, but it's not quite centered in its specification. As Matt discussed about some of these machines may need adjustments for energies, how it responds on the depth dose. Some of the profile is off, either in flatness or symmetry. So the LINAC may need some energy or beam steering. The facility can fail. You'd be amazed at the sites we have gone to under construction you know, with literally no running water, maybe no bathroom. Ventilation is iffy, it's hot or it's cold, it's freezing. There's no windows, they're boarded up. But we have experienced facility power failures, facility uh, air conditioning, HVAC failures that we've had to deal with. The things that happen to us that are somewhat under our control is our own equipment failing or our equipment is delivered late. We went through a three-week trauma during the biggest winter storm of early 2021 in February, the equipment got stuck at some hub point. I think it was in Ohio. We were supposed to have it out in Washington State. It didn't make it there. We quick went to another job, used their, their beam scan, and went back. But let me just go back on the, the LINAC, the energy and beam steering. In this case, when things like this happen, we would immediately contact the site physicist. Uh, we have their number. And very often these things are in specification, but they're not centered very well. And we know if it was our machine, we'd want it closer to center. So usually a decision is made. We're going to try to get it, say, within. I might go to Matt for this because I don't recall all the specs on flatness and symmetry. But sometimes if we want to get it at least close to the center. Maybe I'll let Matt comment on the, some of the beam steering and the rework we've done on some of these machines. Yeah. I mean, so one of the things, we're finding is that, you know, a lot of times um, the installers have a set of equipment that they use to make sure things are within specification, um, which is not a water tank. And 
that gives them results that are that says everything's okay. But when we actually put a water tank and do uh, a real data collection, then the results are no longer within specification. And so, again, that's part of our the QA scans that we run at the beginning before we do all the other scanning data is we kind of check those things now, make sure that flatness and symmetry is within what the manufacturer says they are. And if not, then we, like I said, contact the site physicist. And then we always try to get numbers for the local service engineers because you know, in case anything goes wrong, we need to be able to call someone quickly. And we talk to them about coming in and kind of helping us through that process because it is something that, especially on newer Linux, which are much more digital, that the manufacturer needs to be involved in as well versus just the commissioning team. But we always kind of talk to the site physicists and it kind of depends on them, right? We kind of leave the decision up to them. Would you rather us do this work or would you rather you know, do it again by yourself potentially later on? It does take time, right? So it will slow down the commissioning somewhat. That's kind of the, the biggest thing with, you know, when things go wrong, we always communicate with the customer with what's going on. And then if there's a decision point, we talk to them, what do you want to do, right? And we just kind of follow, we kind of talk to them through that process. So we don't just assume that we know best and that's the way forward. We talk to them and say, okay, this is your machine. How do you want us to handle this? And so that's sort of one of the things that we kind of pride ourselves on is to one, be have that constant communication and then also making sure that the customer is involved in all the decision-making. If I may chime back in, when I talked about facility failures, so we just went over some of the linear accelerator failures or needing adjustment. One of the requests that we make for the site before we arrive is that they run this new machine for an extended time, maybe 20 minutes to half an hour, just beam on the highest energy and let it run. Because in the past, we have gone to some sites where let's say they have multiple vaults and they're operating linear accelerators performing treatments we're in a new vault next door. And we have found out that maybe the HVAC or the cooling water was never tested for the increased load of this new machine running for long periods of time. So that's why we like to have it run before we get there for a long period. There is one other delay that's beyond our control. So we do most of the models. Our physicists build those models themselves, whether it be a treatment planning system of Eclipse. We also have in-house expertise in Pinnacle. And I believe we're developing expertise in research and race station. The one exception to all of these is Electa Monaco. That has their own physicist in Atlanta, where the commissioning team takes the data, formats it, groups it appropriately, but it is sent off to a remote physicist to build that model. And so we, what we can't control is the time it takes for that remote model to be built. And then we'll have a second trip to the site to validate uh, those models. That's one delay that's kind of been beyond our control. I think there's been some frustration with the time it took, uh, but we worked through it. Yeah, I mean, we pretty much just try to stay in constant contact in those situations with whoever's doing the modeling and get a timeline, just you know, try to be as open as we can with the customer to see when we can come back as soon as time possible to, uh, to complete that work. So, and usually we, you know, those, that's something also that we try to make sure that the customer knows in advance, right? So they know that this is going to happen and this is going to be the timeline um, so they know what they're signing up for. It's not a surprise, you know, hey, I think you guys are going to be done in three days. Why is this taking two weeks sort of thing? Um, we always try to communicate that up front because we know that the, the last thing you want is uh, unexpected surprises and delays. Um, there's usually enough of those in the construction process left alone. By the time we get it, um, everyone's trying to make up time, right? Now, doesn't, I don't think we've had a job yet where we're like, oh, take your time. You've got weeks to spare. I don't think we've ever encountered that uh, situation, unfortunately. So <laughs> Rob, Robert, do you have anything else to add or? I mean, I would just say that, um, you know, overall, 
I think we do a good job of trying to mitigate, you know, any errors or, or problems that may arise, but, you know, there can always be something that happens. But I mean, the good thing is that we are, I would say that we're, we're very flexible, um, you know, so if there is something that happens with, say, the, the water tank or, or, you know, some piece of equipment, we can, you know, we've had instances where we've overnighted, you know, another set of equipment in. You know, so we have backups uh, and things or, you know, we'll move on uh, to another set of measurements that we can do at that time and then come back um, and still try to, you know, meet the deadlines um, and the, the time frame that we've given the customers. I mean, I think in the, you know, the two and a half years that I've been um, with the commissioning team, I, I think we've met all the timelines, um, you know, that we've promised um, in that time. So I think we do a pretty good job at that. Yeah, if I may just jump in after Robert. One of those things we do if, if uh, say, uh, some piece of equipment has failed is some of these sites will also contract with us to perform their radiation survey. So that's something that can be done without the scanning tank in the way. It's moved off to the side. And all you really need is a couch operational shoving in and out water for scatter or no scatter. Some of these sites that we've gone to, as I said, they weren't well finished. This could be in the snow. We've had to climb up to the roof in a blizzard to do this because you're standing outside above the room to the sides and the sub-basements. Another site literally was a mud swamp. I mean, this thing had trash, mud. There were no walkways. We were throwing stones and boards in. This place, I think it had everything except alligators and dengue fever. It may even have had that. We just got lucky. So, so we just ask if the facility's not quite complete or it has these difficulties, just warn us in advance so we can bring some mud boots or hip boots or something or some extra stepping stones. Canoe, whatever we need to get there. Yeah, yeah. But, but we, we got through it. We, we did that site, and I was real proud of the fact. This was on the, the occupancy route? factor's low. <laughs> the other thing we didn't talk a lot about, we talked earlier. One of the other delays that's on us, I said, is if our equipment does not arrive or it fails, that's why we've, we've gone into some of our own participated in the design. We also have a partner that does our uh, shipping crate building for us in Ohio. And we, Matt and I have actually visited this place. We've actually gone in with them, given them layout drawings, where the foam should be, where these extra kick plates should be. We've even discussed the load on the wheels. So they don't, we've had prior people complain that we stuffed their floors or maybe we bumped their wall. But the shipping crates have been extremely robust. And the other thing we try to do is whoever gets there early goes in the night before to check the shipping crate and see if there's a forklift hole in the side. Uh, one crate, for instance, in Oregon was crushed. It literally somebody stacked something on top of it and actually bent the bar on the scanning tank. We had another bar sent out the following day and had it replaced. So we try to get in there as soon as possible, even if we're not scheduled to start until Monday at 8 a.m. One of us is usually there Sunday night at 6 p.m. to check that the equipment is as we expected. And I think that's all my notes on what happens when things don't go as planned. Well, I think between blizzards and alligators hanging out on rooftops, um, I've learned a lot from that last segment. <laughs> really appreciate it. That's honestly all, all good advice um, for folks to reach out in, if they're in the need of, of the radiation testing on the outside. Yeah. That said, and those things, you know, speaking to the flexibility your team has uh, and, and the constant growth for, for change and, and improvement. What things have you improved on this year, this month, or even this past commissioning task? 
you know, one great thing about this team that I really appreciate is that, you know, everyone likes to, you know, be continuously improving and, you know, we try not to be, you know, complacent and uh, where we are and how we do things. And we're, I mean, I don't know, you know, Matt and I talk about maybe we're just lazy, but we'll call it efficient, but, you know, we want to, you know, we want things to be automated you know, as much as possible. Um, and, you know, in the end, that leads to better, you know, quicker timelines and, you know, better customer satisfaction and high, higher quality work. But, you know, the things that, um, you know, again, going back to Rob and maybe, you know, this will be a good segue for Rob to talk about some of the software development. We've, you know, this year implemented, um, you know, this new scan uh, comparison tool and, and Beam QA software that's really uh, helped us save a lot of time on site because we were using tools that were uh, available within existing software, you know, that we had. And and there's really not, you know, software out there that you can go and buy that a purchase that does this type of analysis uh, for you. Um, and, you know, and it is automated. And and the nice thing is that can we can customize it as well for our application. So, um, I don't know, this might be a good time for, for Rob to talk about um, our, our new software tools. Sure, yeah. So uh, one of the, the, the first things I worked on was uh, gamma comparison software. Uh, so the software that the team was using before, they had to kind of go through one scan at a time and, and manually compare them and print out the reports. And then the new tool does all that and generates the report kind of all in less than a minute, I think. And uh, I think uh, verifying that, we... And validated against previous data, we found some interesting things. Uh, for example, the the gamma comparison itself, we noticed some discrepancies. We noticed the passing rate was almost always the same as the previous software that the team was using. But then the graph itself, like the peak gamma value, would often be slightly different. And kind of got into the weeds on that one, but went to the, the geometric interpretation of gamma as like looking for a point on one curve you can draw an ellipse around and touch the other curve and, you know, minimizing the size of that ellipse and that uh, becomes a gamma value. So that kind of generalizes to higher dimensions and simplicities and stuff. But anyway, you can create this nice gamma plot of a comparison where you draw an ellipse for every gamma value and the other curve should be tangent to the ellipse to show that it's the correct size. And, and we did all that and saw that I think proved to ourselves that, that the gamma calculation was correct and that we could trust it as well as comparing it, you know, against hundreds of, of scans at a time. And same thing with the, the Beam QA software that we've developed. We actually, Tim has, has gone back to the previous reports and, and found small inconsistencies. And we realized that, you know, maybe different people were using different versions of the software or slightly different settings in, in Beam QA. And, and for the most part, it affected like, you know, maybe like the last decimal digit of a result or something. And it was almost all pretty small. But in some cases, you know, we had to go back. And that's, I think, part of the, the service that the team provides, like they'll contact, you know, customers that have, you know, we found, hey, this number in your Beam QA report was transposed with this other number. But, you know, we found that at this point. So <laughs> we'll be willing to accept the correction. Yeah. So I think the, yeah, the addition of, you know, automation of some of these things, uh, you know, reduces, uh, you know, like we talked about the human factor, you know, component and, and possible errors, you know, again, you know, if we're working late at night and things like that, um, you know, we do try to double check ourselves as, as best as possible, um, but that definitely you know, reduces uh, potentials uh, and error. I mean, but again, just going back to, you know, to that, I mean, we, you know, we're just constantly looking, you know, for improvement, not only in, in software and our measurements, but, you know, like we talked about, you know, making our shipping rates better uh, and more robust for shipping. 
um, you know, that that just leads to, you know, reductions and potential problems uh, and equipment breaking and, and things like that. Um, and then just, you know, even just down into the measurements of, you know, making better spreadsheets um, that, you know, are clear as someone's using them, or they, you know, reference historical data that um, clearly alerts you, um, you know, if there is a an error in a measurement um, where, you know, some of this, you know, has to be typed in by hand when you're taking measurements and you may transpose a couple of numbers and, um, you know, it will alert you um, to that. So just making the whole process um, smoother, um, you know, as we go along has, you know, has been a, a really big focus of ours, uh, I think, over the past couple of years. Um, Matt and Tim, you guys have anything else to, to add sure. to that? Well, I'd just like to add that Robert and I have been actually working on, and Matt has seen this, the granularity of a spreadsheet and also a Visio flowchart. Literally, we have documented and are optimizing the flow, the settings, the equipment to efficiently go through an entire commissioning on a given type of machine with a given treatment planning system and have the most efficient flow where maybe we can deliver something, a beam model, six hours sooner than we did before by going through common setups, common detectors. Also, it's not just the data, right? You have to then input some of this data into a model or some of this is also, we're actually developing, there are three things going on. As we're taking the data, we're also building the customer's data book and we're building their beam models simultaneously. There's kind of these three things going on with measurement, building a model, building the data book. And we're trying to take the points at which certain groups of data can be taken out and processed for the model or taken out and processed for the data book and do them in an order where it's all done correctly but delivers everything sooner and with the least errors. I might point out, I think three of us have actually worked in medical device companies that were ISO 1345 certified. And so we are used to the drudgery, but also the exactness of what that requires. For me, being on submarines was probably what drives me guys to be like I am, because there you die. If you don't, you don't do your job correctly, there are not many ways out of a sinking submarine. So that's your friends and your family. But in this case, it's it's patients. By the way, my wife is a cancer survivor. My father died of pancreatic cancer. So it's very personal to me that we want to make their treatment as exact and wrap around their tumor as correctly as possible with the least collateral damage. But I think submarines is what makes me as retentive as I am. <laughs> I can see that. I can see the good stories there. And, and, and I appreciate you sharing the personal side of that as well. I know a lot of us have been impacted by the work that we do personally, not only professionally, but personally as well. And those goals are what keep most of us moving forward. So definitely appreciate you guys taking time to share your stories. For folks who are listening and are interested in reaching out and making contact with your team, how might they go about doing that? Yeah, I mean, so one thing is we've got, uh, so we have a website, Lander has a website. There's a contact form on there and that gets sent out. There's also a phone number so you can call us or um, contact us through that. I don't know. How would uh, you have an email on the podcast? Has anyone ever done that before? Like, um, I can add it in the show notes. Feel free to reach out. And I'd be happy to uh, talk with you about you know whatever your needs are. Um, or if you just have commissioning questions, sometimes we just answer questions right as well. Um, for people to have different um, scenarios come up and want, want some advice because we've done it a lot, right? So we're more than happy to do that as well. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a project to contact us. But yeah, I mean, pretty much just ask. I mean, we're always, it's one of the other things, you know, like for instance, um, we don't really have a, a time limit on customer support. <laughs> Sometimes we get customer, you know, questions from customers from 
you know, five years ago or six years ago where they just want to look at their data or they have a question about why was this done this way, we always go back and, and answer those. So there's um, never a, a time limit on that. If you want to reach out to us for commissioning or anything else, yeah, just um, use the website or just email me and uh, we'll get it taken care of. I don't know, Robert, Tim, do you guys have any other thoughts on that? If I may add, yeah, we, so we went to actually great trouble, Tracy, in building the website. It was uh, very minimal uh, when Matt and I first started. You almost wouldn't even know Landauer did commissioning, except I think we were known by word of mouth. But if you looked at our website, the residents actually had a bigger presence on there, a presence than we did. So now it has all of our bios are there. There are actually video links. There are uh, bullet points of what we do. Uh, we actually had a professional photo session at one of our sites. So you can see one of our, actually, it's an older tank set up under the uh, linear accelerator. It's really quite a cool site. I'm actually very proud of it. It's come a long way. There is a link for the references. If you went to uh, www.landauer.com slash radiation dash oncology dash commissioning, there's an actually a, a small form. I think many of us would like this to have been direct, but the company wanted to collect the data from who's ever asking. So I think you put in your name, your work email, maybe your cell phone, and then you actually get a list of actual past customers. And then you can talk to them without us being a filter or an intermediary. And I think that's the biggest value of this is you're going to get an unfiltered answer of what we did right or what they'd like us to do better. Anyway. I like that. But yeah, what I mean, went great and what could be improved? Yeah, we actually do follow up with all our customers. So we do kind of a pre-commission survey. We also do a post-commission survey. So and we always give them like have, you know, out of a five-star rating or what would we improve, right? So we actually made a change, for instance, that BMQA report that Rob was talking about earlier, just based off some customer feedback recently. But our so far our rating is like a 4.9. So we are a great Uber driver and we're also be a, a great commissioning team. So <laughs> Fantastic. The next time I'm in need of a, of a Linac commissioning and a ride to the airport. That's right. Thank you all so much. Um, as we wrap up here, I certainly appreciate you all taking time out of your days to come and share your stories about being a commissioning team and all the amazing uh, tidbits and highlights uh, from this episode uh, interview. I certainly appreciate you taking time to do that with me. Thank oh, you thank for you having us. Yeah. Thanks, Tracy. Thank Folks, we thank you for taking time to tune into Out of the Gray today. We ask that you like, subscribe, and share to help these messages spread even further. To reach True North Medical Physics, you can give them a call at 407-494-3868, email them at info at truenorthmedphys.com, or schedule a chat with the team at www.truenorthmedphys.com. I'll be sure to put all of this in the show description for convenience. Thank you so much. We've had a blast having you with us today, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Have a wonderful day.